1: I've just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land.
2: Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Taryn Siegel. A podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the last seven days and how we got here. On today's episode,
1: the crowd is chanting God, Syria, and freedom. More than a thousand people have died after government forces fired rockets with toxic agents. Today, I want to make it absolutely clear to Assad and those under his command the world is watching.
0: But first, Here's what happened in the world this week.
1: On Wednesday
0: evening, a 43-year-old German man shot and killed nine people in a small suburb outside Frankfurt. The shooting started at a hookah lounge, where the gunman killed several people before moving 1.5 miles west and opening fire again. He was found dead at his home later that night by police, along with his mother, who was also dead with gunshot wounds. Authorities are still trying to piece together his motive, but it seems pretty clear that it came from far-right xenophobia. Some of the victims from the hookah bars are Turkish and a website was found that was registered to the same name as the shooter that spouted racist ideologies. It also seems like the shooter may have posted a video online where he repeated conspiracy theories about child abuse in the US. Daily protests have erupted in Mexico over the past week over the separate deaths of a 25-year-old woman and a seven-year-old girl. Mexico has long struggled with a problem of violence against women. Um, For example, in 2019, the government recorded over a thousand cases of uh, femicide, or the killing of women and girls because of their gender, which is a 10% increase from the previous year. It seems like these last two grisly deaths were kind of the breaking point for Mexicans frustrated by their government's lack of action. Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador has been heavily criticized for his reactions so far. On Monday, he said this issue of violence against women has been manipulated a lot in the media and that the protests over the killings were just an attempt to distract people from his great social programs. López Obrador's very dismissive attitude has infuriated protesters, understandably, and it could turn into a real crisis for his government if he doesn't find a better way to respond to the issue.
2: I don't think it's spiraling out of control. I think it's a massive problem. I hope that it will be possible to be contained, but it is a very dangerous situation.
0: In the latest in the coronavirus corner, Russia has introduced a ban on Chinese nationals entering the country that went into effect midnight on Thursday. Although when the ban was first announced by the Russian government on Tuesday, it was really general and sweeping. They quickly clarified that actually it would only apply to Chinese nationals traveling with tourists, student and work visas, though that's obviously still a lot of people. After two weeks of quarantine, passengers from the Japanese cruise ship are finally being allowed to disembark after 621 people on the ship tested positive for the coronavirus. Sadly, two infected elderly passengers have since died. And after deciding to change how they confirm cases, China saw a huge drop in cases last week. Uh, Previously, anyone who seemed likely to have the coronavirus was deemed a confirmed case before the test results came back, just to help with the containment of the virus. But even with this drop, uh, as of recording, the number of cases around the world is reaching 75,000, Uh, And it'll probably shoot way beyond that before this podcast is released. Do you want to play a language game?
1: In order to show in this game what is red, we will actually remove the other two. It's the object to
0: the left. Finally, on Wednesday, the European Union unveiled its proposal for regulating artificial intelligence. The EU authorities say that they want to be able to test and certify the data used by the algorithms that drive AI in the same way that they do regulatory checks on cosmetics and cars and toys and things like that. Basically, they want to set out their own guidelines for regulating AI that ensures it's safe and respects human rights. Even though the European Union isn't home to any of the tech giants around the world pioneering AI technology, the block can leverage its huge, lucrative market, telling tech companies that in order to have access to their market, they have to abide by their safety rules. This announcement comes after a New York Times investigation found that a completely unregulated facial recognition technology is being used by law enforcement all over the U.S. The company, called Clearview AI, scraped photos from sites like Facebook and LinkedIn to amass an enormous database that police are using to identify criminal suspects through an app. So basically, if you have any kind of presence online that includes photos, you're pretty much guaranteed to already be in their database. And at the moment, there is no one whatsoever regulating the company, or how they use their massive database, or who they sell it to. And with that, it's time for this week's Deep Dive. On Thursday, two Turkish soldiers were killed in an airstrike in northwestern Syria. This marks a serious escalation in a battle that has already triggered the worst humanitarian crisis in Syria's nine year civil war. The battle is happening in one of the last regions held by Syrian rebel forces, the province of Idlib. Until recently, this area had been marked out as a ceasefire zone, and life there was relatively normal, at least compared to the rest of Syria. But the treaty brokered between Turkey and Russia the two major powers doing battle in the region broke down. And now the Syrian government is marching on the region, trying to reclaim it, and forcing nearly one million Syrians to flee further north, where they're met with a closed border to Turkey. As I said, the civil war in Syria is entering its ninth year. And looking at the battle happening right now in Idlib, one obvious question you might ask is, If this is a civil war between the government and Syrian rebels, why are Turkey and Russia the ones at war in Idlib? This is probably the most complicated conflict happening in the world right now. So convoluted with so many shifting players that I'm actually going to devote two episodes to it all. Just a quick warning that uh, this episode contains descriptions of torture and brutality that some listeners might find offensive. To begin to understand the civil war in Syria, you shouldn't think of it as just a civil war. It definitely started like that, but in the years since, it's morphed into something like a war of world powers that's been played out on Syria's unfortunate battlefield. The players in this war, with varying degrees of involvement, are the U.S., Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Lebanon, of course, Syria, and also tons of other militias who have at times been more violent and brutal than anyone. But like I said, it did start as a civil war. So let's go back to that, to the spring of 2011. That year saw a seemingly unstoppable wave of protests and government overthrows across Tunisia, Libya, and Egypt. The season of uprising across the Arab world was called the Arab Spring. Inspired by it, citizens across Syria began their own peaceful protests against the government. So why were some Syrians protesting against the government? Well, the president, Bashar al-Assad, had been in power since his father's death in 2000. His father was the previous president, so that meant the Assad family had been ruling Syria unchecked since 1963. Every seven years, there would be an election, if you could call it that, where Assad, first the father, then the son, was the only candidate running. But this corruption was just the tip of the iceberg. When Assad I came to power in 1963, he declared a state of emergency that would continue for nearly 50 years. The government used this emergency state as an excuse to jail, torture, and even kill protesters and opponents of the government. The Syrian government, does and always has had one of the worst human rights records in the world. In fact, the spark that ignited the waves of protests around the country in 2011 is a perfect example of the regime's horrible brutality. On February 15th, 2011, a group of boys aged 10 to 15 wrote graffiti on some walls around the Syrian city of Dira. One slogan they painted was, the people want to topple the regime something they had seen chanted and waved around in Egypt and Libya. Another said, your turn, doctor, referring to President Assad, who has a medical degree. Some say the boys were deeply politically motivated, but some of their friends say that they were just being rebellious teenagers. Either way, the next day the boys were rounded up by the government's security forces. They were kept in prison for weeks while they were beaten, burned, and had their fingernails pulled out. When they were finally released in March and their treatment was made known, it sparked total outrage. So the first protests began in Deirah, but they quickly moved elsewhere across the country. This is Al Jazeera reporting on March 18th.
1: The crowd is chanting God, Syria, and freedom. For nearly 50 years, Syria has been ruled under emergency laws by President Bashar al-Assad's Ba'ath party. But like elsewhere in the region, it has a young, technology-savvy population that is one step ahead of the state security apparatus.
0: But staying one step ahead didn't last long. The regime forces responded with ferocity.
1: People of Dara, these men shout, your blood is ours. The people of Daraa have watched their blood spill for daring to challenge Syria's 50-year state of emergency. (laughs) Dozens of protesters in this city have been killed. Pictures emerged overnight, appearing to show troops opening fire yesterday in the street.
0: That was Channel 4 News. So the first shots in the conflict were fired on peaceful Arab Spring protesters by Assad's forces. What followed was three months of a bloody crackdown by the government. In July, the people criticizing Assad's regime started firing back and turned from peaceful protesters to rebel forces. Some troops even defected from the Syrian army to join them. They called themselves the Free Syrian Army. So what started as a series of demonstrations around the country was now a civil war. And at the outset, the rebel forces were optimistic. Western powers, including the US and the European Union, threw their support behind the rebels, at least in words. This is Hillary Clinton speaking in August 2011 when she was Secretary of State.
2: This morning, President Obama called on Assad to step aside and announced the strongest set of sanctions to date targeting the Syrian government. The transition to democracy in Syria has begun, and it's time for Assad to get out of the way.
0: But Assad had no plans of stepping aside. And after the lessons of the Iraq War, Western powers were really reluctant to get too directly involved in toppling his regime. In lieu of Western countries helping out the rebel forces, jihadist extremists from all over the world started flooding into Syria to help the rebels. Okay, without oversimplifying too much, it might be helpful to explain some of the ethnic tensions playing out under the surface here. So Syria is a hugely ethnically diverse country. But the majority are Sunni Muslims. Assad and his government come from the Alawite sect of Islam, which is a minority group in Syria. Alawite identifies as its own sect, but if you think of Islam as dividing into two basic categories, Sunni and Shia, And Alawite falls under this Shia umbrella. Most of the rebel forces are Sunni. Jihadists, which is a term used for militant extremists that root their ideology in Islam, are pretty exclusively Sunni. So this is why jihadists around the world were coming to Syria to help the rebels. Because to them, it wasn't just an uprising of people fed up with their repressive government. It was a Sunni versus Shia conflict. This was the first time that outside forces would come in and exploit the Syrian conflict towards their own agenda. It would happen again and again over the years until the war had transformed into something totally unrecognizable. Far from being threatened or disturbed that jihadists were entering the fray, Assad actually encouraged this. He even released lots of jihadists from prisons inside Syria so they could join the rebels. The idea was this wave of support from extremists would taint the rebel cause and make Western powers more reluctant to come to their defense. In January 2012, Al-Qaeda set up a Syrian branch of its terrorist group that was backing the rebels. Al-Qaeda, keep in mind, is an extremist Sunni militant group. Now that these ethnic dimensions were starting to come to the surface, Iran entered the fray in the summer of 2012. This is Iran's national security advisor announcing Iran's initiative. Iran, a majority Shia country, is Assad's most important ally. They started sending daily cargo flights to Syria to help Assad's forces. This got the attention of Iran's enemies like Saudi Arabia.
1: The fighters have been calling for outside help for many months. Now, for the first time... A strong indication they're getting it. A Ukrainian weapons firm made the box and its contents for the Royal Saudi Army. What's in it and how it ended up in a rebel base in Aleppo is unclear. But it suggests someone in the Gulf is helping those trying to overthrow President Assad. In truth, both sides now get help from abroad in a proxy war that threatens a fragile region.
0: That was the BBC. So now Saudi Arabia was sending weapons to aid the rebel forces through Turkey, which was also on the side of the rebels. And meanwhile, Iran was fighting on behalf of Assad. In mid-2012, Iran ramps up its support for Assad through one of its proxy militant groups, Lebanese Hezbollah. Hezbollah enters Syria and joins Assad's army. It's around this time that President Obama issues a warning to Assad.
1: Today I want to make it absolutely clear to Assad and those under his command, the world is watching. The use of chemical weapons is and would be totally unacceptable. If you make the tragic mistake of using these weapons, there will be consequences and you will be held accountable.
0: But by August 2013, it was obvious Obama's warning had not been heeded.
1: Well, it's been a week that grabbed the attention of the international community. The Syrian National Coalition says more than a 1,000 people have died after government forces fired rockets with toxic agents. The attack allegedly happened in the eastern Damascus suburb of Ghouta in the early hours of Wednesday. But the Syrian government has denied the claims. Meanwhile, U.N. Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon is asking the Syrian government to allow U.N. inspectors full access
0: to investigate these latest allegations of chemical attacks. That was Al Jazeera. When it's finally proven that Assad's forces did use chemical weapons, which violates international law against its own civilians, President Obama tries to carry out a targeted strike in Syria against Assad's forces, but he couldn't get Congress's approval. This is him speaking at a presidential address trying to assuage some of his lawmakers' concerns.
1: Even a limited strike will send a message to Assad that no other nation can deliver. I don't think we should remove another dictator with force. We learned from Iraq that doing so makes us responsible for all that comes next. But a targeted strike can make Assad or any other dictator think twice before using chemical weapons.
0: In February 2014, something happened in the region that would forever transform the war. An affiliate of al-Qaeda based in Iraq breaks off and forms its own group, The new group vows to form its own state and marches across Iraq and Syria, seizing territory and committing atrocities. At its height, it would come to control one-third of Syria. The group called itself the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIS. Next week, I'll pick up here and tell you how ISIS transformed the conflict, pulling in the US and Russia, and what's happening today, years after ISIS lost most of its territory. Plus, I'll talk about the exodus of Syrian civilians and the ensuing refugee crisis. One thing that's important to keep in mind in all this is that the war drags on from year to year, while other conflicts around the world rise and fall and shift the focus of the world's attention, in Syria, things are only getting worse. All right, and that's our show for this week. Tune in next week for part two of the Syrian Civil War on Where We Are with Terence Siegel.
2: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs>